Welcome to The Upshot, Ulti World Disc Golf's podcast about the latest in the disc golf world. I'm the publisher of Ulti World Disc Golf, Charlie Eisenhood, and I'm joined by Jamie Thomas. Jamie, how are you, buddy? I am good. Back at home once again. Trying to get caught up on the mountain of media coverage that was this week at the Memorial. There's so much to go through. I'm really excited. Yeah, more to come, too, as uh, more FPO footage will be coming out from Smashbox this week. And it was an exciting weekend, that's for sure. Finally, Simon Lazat comes away with the championship. He goes 1-2 with Eagle. So it's the Crush Boys at the top of the pack. Simon goes 43-under. Defeats Eagle, uh, who was three strokes back at 40 under. Nate Sexton finishes on the podium at 39 down, followed up by Ricky Wysocki and Paul McBeth. Simon's going to join us in a little bit right here on the show to talk about his win. But, you know, I think the first thing is shout out to Eagle McMahon for getting that pick right when he called Simon to win this tournament last week on the show. Eagle has more correct picks now than I do. So... I'm like I'm in like third place and there's only two hosts on the show right now. It's, <laughs> I'm doing badly so far. Yeah, I think we both pretty much struck out this week on our picks. Uh although you picked Paige on the FBO side. Paige Pierce, dominant, dominant, nineteen under. Lisa Fakus in second, uh tied with Jessica Weiss at eight under. So that's uh, quite the win for Paige Pierce. Hoping to have her on the show next week as we talk a little bit more about the FPO start to the year and, you know, kind of some of the questions. Paige Pierce, we're going to see another totally dominant season. Can anybody else catch up? Pretty interesting to see some new names on the podium with Fakus and Weiss getting there. But we're going to save that for next week's show. Today, I want to focus mostly on what's been going on on the MPO side. And I think we just got to start by talking about Simon's performance. It was really just an all-around, super solid, well-rounded game from Simon Lazat. He, you know, on courses that very much suit his game, he was driving extremely well. He was putting extremely well, which I think is something that he doesn't always find the rhythm for. And uh, that led him to a just really strong across-the-board performance um, and, you know, didn't didn't try to do too much, something we've seen from him in the past. Had that amazing 14-under third round at Fountain Hills. And all in all, just, you know, looked like the, the best guy at the course pretty much all week. Yeah, when you look to find, you know, you want to rewrite history in your head if you're playing one of these events and you say, hey, how could I have beat Simon? He really didn't leave many doors open. I mean, he was top five in the field in five of the eight stats that UDISC is tracking, which, by the way, thank you, UDISC. Thank you, PDGA, for that partnership. I love it. it gives us stuff to talk about. Um, he just, and he was, I guess he was 24th in the field in circle one putts, but that's still 92%. You know, it, there was just, he did fight, and there was no real window for somebody else to sneak in past that first round. I, I'm trying to find something to criticize. Yeah, I know. I mean, you, you look at it. He His birdie percentage was 64%, which put him easily at the top of the heap. And he only bogeyed or worse 4% of the time. Also, I believe, just about tops on the course. I think Bobby Music may have had him beat. 
but uh, Bobby Music only birdied 44% of the time. So, I mean, a huge difference there. Music finishing tied for 11th. Uh, ultimately, just super strong all-around performance from Simon Lazat. And he's been close here before. It's, it's not like this is some kind of aberration or that we wouldn't expect to see Simon near the top of the leaderboard, uh, particularly at this, at this tournament. But, it, it, you know, just the, as you'll hear from him in the interview in, in a little bit, uh, the ability to, to essentially throw a hyzer on every hole makes this just very well suited for his game. And that means that when the putter's going, he's going to be very difficult to beat. Yeah, no doubt. And I think if I were to point to one thing that's really the X factor for Simon personally, the fact that he was sixth in the field with his OB rate, I mean, that's, you know, the biggest criticism of his game, other than sometimes not finding his putt, is that when he's aggressive, he gets aggressive and he takes a lot of out of bounds penalties because of it. And he was able to stay, you know, for the very most part, free of those penalties. I think he had five all weekend as i'm looking five and four rounds which considering there's no fiesta lakes this year it's phenomenal and i think we can't overlook the fact that eagle finished number two here and so that means he starts his season finishing first at las vegas finishing second at the memorial perhaps this is the year where we really see eagle make the leap and I'm a little hesitant to say that it's going to happen yet because these early season courses fit his game really well. So I want to wait and see how things start to look when we're playing courses that are a little bit more technical, that require a lot of different shot shapes. But you got to give it to him. This is an amazing start. And, you know, he's already got as we talked with him about last week on the show, he's got the monkey off his back with the win at the NT event. And it just feels like this could be his chance to have just a huge season. No doubt. I mean, his round at Fountain Hills is not anything to scoff at. He shot 12 down and he bogeyed at the beginning of the front nine and the beginning of the back nine. So if he avoids those B penalty bogeys on those holes, he's, you know, if he pars, he's tied with Simon. If he birdies it, he's one off of Macbeth's record. So one thing I was sleeping on him when I was making my picks for this past week is I said, all right, well, he, he really came out and made a statement, but can he follow up? And I've doubted Eagle two weeks in a row now, and I don't know if I can like not put him on the podium anymore if he keeps playing like this. Totally. Uh, otherwise, you know, standard top five in a lot of ways you, you know you see uh, Nate Sexton playing extremely well I think you, you heard from him on the Jomez coverage that he was pretty happy with his overall game I mean pretty sure he had the hot round in the final round he went 11 down and, and that was with a couple of holes that you know he missed a putt here or there that he really shouldn't have missed I mean he he could have been right there and just a, a couple things didn't go his way I mean he did not bogey in the final round and he was keeping the pressure on for a while and then just had four straight pars, 13 through 16, while Simon and Eagle each got a pair of birdies. And that pretty much put it away. But uh, a nice performance from Nate Sexton as he looks to continue his really strong goal from the end of last season. 
Yeah, Nate, I mean, his last three rounds at this tournament were double-digit under par, and if he had been able to start off on a good foot, who knows? We may have been looking at Nate Sexton taking down this event because uh, he really he made a charge from behind, and I think that's not something that's super characteristic of his game. You know, he's he's not always that birdie-or-die person. He He plays more aggressive than it looks on the outset, but... Again, I, I think he played really well. And when I told him at uh, Vegas that I had picked him to win, you know, after it was all over, of course, he said, oh, well, you should have told me. And I feel <laughs> like for you and I, Sexton and Conrad, we just picked him a week too early. Because yeah, they exactly. showed up in a big way here in, at uh, Memorial. Absolutely. Um, James Conrad, you know, kind of had a little bit of a meltdown in the back nine in the final round, but otherwise had had a great tournament. Um, and just, you know, he had some weird stuff happen. He, one of his shots went off of a water bottle that kept it OB that otherwise would have gone back in bounds, like kind of some brutal stuff, but on the whole, James Conrad played great, uh, ended up finishing tied for sixth at 31 under. So let's take a quick look here at a couple of topics. First thing, one of the most controversial moments this weekend and they highlighted it really well I thought uh, on the uh, Jomez video after the uh, you know the the second day coverage and this was a moment where it was a fairway shot from Ricky Wysocki and he threw his shot from what looked like two to three feet behind his marker and Nicola Castro called a footfall. Now, nobody else on the card, either they didn't see it or they didn't want to call it. So there was no second from anybody and play continued. Now, note that the new rule is that if a footfall is called and it is seconded, including by the player who threw the shot themselves there is a one-stroke penalty assessed. You keep the shot. You don't re-throw like you did in the past. You keep the shot and you take a penalty. So that would have been fairly substantial. Now, I don't think there's any doubt that the shot that Ricky threw was a footfall. I mean, the the video evidence is pretty incontrovertible. It's not like it was borderline. He was clearly way too far behind his marker. Now, that's not really the question, right? Was was Nico technically in the right to make the call? Absolutely. It was definitely a footfall. You can go check out the video if you want to see this for yourself. However, the general norms of calling footfalls means that calling one in a situation like that, a relatively kind of meaningless, different, like whether his foot was a foot ahead or a foot behind where he was would not have affected his shot in a meaningful sense. It's not like he was trying to get around a tree or something and use that to his advantage in a meaningful way. So the norms at the at the pro level have typically been that foot faults are called in, in a way that can often benefit the player. At USDGC last year, and I didn't end up writing about this because it felt sort of inconsequential in the grander scheme of the round. But I remember on 
uh, on the, I believe it's the fifth hole, the, the big water hole that goes along the, the edge of the lake and then back around behind the big grove of trees. Uh, Philo threw a shot. He stepped on his mini and he threw a shot and it became clear that it was going to go in the water. It hit the tree and fell into the, fell into the lake. And I forget who called it, but somebody on the card with him called him on a footfall. It got seconded. And by, per the rules from last year, he got to rethrow. So essentially, he got a, he got a do-over for making a footfall, which, of course, doesn't really make any sense. But that's kind of the way, in general, pros have approached this. It's been mostly a way of kind of like being nice to each other. Like you're not seeing a lot of sort of aggressive footfall calls um, even if that's the correct way to interpret the rules. So was Nico in the right? That's what we're getting to here. Was Nico in the right to make the call, Jamie, or was this overstepping the general norms on the course for the pros? Absolutely, he was in the right. And you hit the nail on the head with a handful of things, actually. The sort of open secret at the pro level for a long, long time is is you just you don't really call a footfall. I mean, there's so there's so few pros who will step up and call a footfall on somebody else on their card. And I think the the justification that these guys and gals use is well, that player would have made that shot anyway. Oh, he stepped on as many. Oh, she missed by a third of a foot width. Like a human foot, not a imperial foot uh, you know they would have made that shot anyway they can putt that well it doesn't matter but the rule change now means like you said that you take that stroke and ricky should have been putting for par not birdie on that hole and you know trust me nico gets his fair share of criticism for his reactions and and the way that we've seen him carry himself on the course in the past but I'll be the first person to say that he's completely in the right about this and that honestly, all of the players on the card should have been paying attention because that's what you're supposed to do. That's the way the rules are written. Now, whether that's the way our game should or shouldn't be officiated is a whole nother discussion. And I have some, you know, different thoughts on that. But Nico is in the right. He he appealed I didn't think he was being disrespectful. He appealed to the card and, you know, they just basically said, well, we dropped the ball and we weren't looking and they should have been plain and simple. To me, the, it's sort of, uh, it's, it's tricky that Nico made the call because I mean, it immediately got chippy. First of all, Uh, Ricky was not happy with the call and, there was a little bit of tension both then and I think probably throughout the rest of the round. But but I think the problem is that it's just like people sort of think, well, it's Nico kind of like being a jerk here. And I imagine that was the reaction on, even on the card. And the issue is that the norms around this don't make sense. I mean, golf, you know, you talk about ball golf, like this would never happen. In ball golf, like they would go back and look at the tape and they would assess a penalty and that, you know, the rules are extremely strict and there's, you know, generally you're not going to waver from them. This golf feels sometimes like it's really loose with the, uh, the interpretation of the rules. 
And to me, it's just sort of strange that you have a situation where you're, you don't have an official on the course, like able to make a ruling in a situation like that. And instead, you're asking the players. And, and, and I get it at a lot of tournaments that probably makes sense. You know, at a B tier, you're not going to pay to have officials there. But when you're talking about the Disc Golf Pro Tour, you're talking about the National Tour, I don't think you should have players making decisions about rule enforcement. And there needs to be some kind of third party who is able to, you know, maybe you have players initiate the calls or something, but somebody needs to be able to say that was a foot fault. The penalty is being assessed and it shouldn't be up to people who have an incentive to either help or hurt their opponents to be making those decisions when it can be a matter of inches in some cases. Yes. Um, I want to unpack a couple things you said and, and try not to go on too long about each one of them because I could. First, yes, you're 100% right. In the ideal version of this sport, I hate the idea of self-policing. It's just the more money gets involved the more crazy things go. And right now we're at a level where we can say, okay, you know what? That's a problem, but it's not a problem we have to solve today because, you know, when's the last time we talked about something like this? The last like major footfall call was like mass, the master's division in worlds two years ago. And then maybe three years ago in Australia, but it doesn't happen that often. Um, the biggest and I understand why you don't you don't go to video evidence. And even the PGA after the LPGA fiasco that happened last year where a viewer called in and they assessed a penalty and I'm That's blanking right. on who it was. Um, was it Paula Creamer? No. I forgot, I forgot who it was on the LPGA tour. But anyway, you know, they outlawed that and said, no, we can't go to video evidence. Because not every pro's every shot is on video. Yeah, was, you know, it it's not Lexi like Lexi Thompson, to, by the way. Lexi Thompson, thank you. Um, it's it's not uh, it's not like basketball or football where the whole game is being filmed and you can dial up multiple camera angles. You know, you may have two or three cards out of the whole field that have cameras on them, and so I understand that you don't want to put undue scrutiny on those players and let maybe. Maybe even the third card player is shooting out the box and he accidentally foot faults, but he makes the lead card. You know, like it, there's not there's not equity in that. So I get it. Um, and, and I don't think they should use video evidence. But in the fully realized version of our sport, we have to have marshals. And, and I understand that that's staffing logistics and that's a whole nother set of problems. So I'm not faulting any TD for that. But my solution would be you got to have a marshal on every hole. Yep. Just like you have a spotter on every hole and you can consult with them and you can still empower the players to make calls. But in this case in 2018, Nico's right and Ricky should have been stroked. But and, and and you're right, but Nico comes away still kind of looking like the bad guy because he's breaking a norm that doesn't make sense. And like that's the problem that I have with the situation is that you know n people weren't paying attention. He clearly had a good angle on it. It was clearly a foot fault, and yet there's really no way to make that work out. And Ricky was extremely upset because that's not how foot faults are normally dealt with, even though he clearly was way too far behind his marker. 
So it, it it's it's not a good situation when if you want to make a call that's by the book, you feel bad about making it or you're made out to be the bad guy for making it because of the way that it's been done in the past. And that's why you never see a footfall called a NAM tournament. I mean, it's not fair at the same time to the players. I mean, especially considering this event, especially considering Simon Lazat birdied 64% of the holes he played this weekend in order to take down the win by only two strokes. So the amount of focus and precision that you have to have to get these relatively soft courses on a major tour, you know, you, you shouldn't have to focus on your opponent's feet. Exactly. The game's, the game's already hard enough or the, the, the competition is, is hard enough where you shouldn't be forced to do a job that ideally is an entirely different person's job and their entire day is focused on that one task. So it's a tough situation. It is. It's, I mean, it's not an easy fix by any means, but I do think that the trend towards having marshals on the holes makes a lot of sense. And it's unfortunate that you end up with a situation where players are getting upset with each other about trying to enforce the rules of the game. That shouldn't be happening. There should be a, there should be a, a policy. There should be uh, something set in stone that, you know, players don't have to feel like they have to, you know, punish the other players on the card themselves. So anyway, an interesting situation. Let us know your thoughts. Shoot us an email, discgolf at ultiworld.com. Let us know. What do you think? Is this, is Nico in the wrong here? Is he right to make the call? How should they deal with this kind of situation in the future, especially with the new footfall rules? Discgolf at ultiworld.com. Let us know. Can I be honest with you? Yeah. I love that two players are getting a little chippy with each other, though. <laughs> if you go and watch the rest of that back nine, there are some interesting putts laid out because it seems like at that moment, Ricky had that he had that look on his face that I haven't seen since, you know, probably 2015, 2016, when he and Paul are just going back and forth and they started. And then Nico's putter got red hot. And he was already playing really well, and they just went putt for putt back and forth. So go watch the second half of the second round. It is on Joe Mez's channel. Phenomenal. Just they're fired up and they're competing, and that was fun to watch. Staring icy daggers, maybe not directly at each other, but, you know, around the bend. Give um, me the drama. <laughs> I want it. Coming up, Simon Lazat joins us right here on The Upshot. Stay tuned. Joining us now is Simon Lazat, who is coming off of a win at the Memorial Championship down in Arizona. Simon, how are you? I am feeling pretty satisfied, pretty happy, and uh, ready for a week off and then back to it. Yeah, it's been, a lo- it's been a long time coming for you at this tournament. You've been close many times. How does it feel to come away finally as the champion? Yeah, wow, I- I feel like I've answered that question like 20 times the last three days, but uh, it feels, of course, it's very, very satisfying. I feel like I finally did a good job doing my job. So these courses, uh, we left away Fiesta this year, which, yeah, I didn't really mind about Fiesta, but 
I don't think it made a big difference. But uh, Vista and Fountain are really famous for 18 hyzers in a row, more or less. So, and everyone who knows my game is that a hyzer is kind of my strength. So if I can <laughs> throw a hyzer on every single hole, then it's all down to what happens on the putting green. And my putter just uh, seemed to be on almost four rounds in a row. And yeah, I knew I, I would be tough to beat. And the other people made some mistakes where I didn't. So I finally, finally uh, pulled through all the way. I'm trying to find some really hard questions to ask you here. Uh, but on first glance, looking at your stats, you really did kind of play out the box in pretty much every category. So I guess my question is, what finally clicked for you? You know, how did you finally put all of the elements together in one single tournament? Um, well, it's not the first time I won a tournament. Uh, it's... I don't know. It's a, of course, it's a combination of a lot of things. Uh, I felt the thing is, my whole body just felt a lot better than it has been in the last couple of months. Maybe probably even the last couple of years. Uh, everyone has heard probably by now about our off-season training, and I'm physically a lot fitter. I'm mentally uh, a lot more happy. I would say a lot more positive. I was pretty burnt out last season, so my break was awesome, and I feel really refreshed. I feel really motivated. And just, yeah, a lot more awake, really, and a lot more focused, because uh, I've been not drinking at all, which, uh, I don't know, I always thought at first that hangovers make me play better, but uh, <laughs> I think I've learned now that being focused and awake is like the true way to do it because uh yeah everything just felt easy like lining up a 40 footer felt like tapping a 15 footer and if that's the feeling i can achieve by not drinking then i think not drinking is what i'm going to keep doing now so, were you just coasting by on your talent is it fair to say until this year um I mean, I've heard that kind of a lot. People are always telling me, oh, you could be so good if you only tried and you're lazy and you just want to party too much. And I agree. I, that's exactly what I wanted to do. And I'm 25 now. I feel like I'm slowly but surely growing up, making smarter choices. And I feel like everyone around me working so hard for this game to grow, for Discmania to grow, they deserve it. They deserve for me to also give my best. So that's what I'm working on right now. Now... When I talked to you at the USDGC, you were feeling pretty low about disc golf. I mean, you were ready to be done. You were yeah. ready to take a lot of time off. You suggested that maybe you were going to tour a lot less this year. How was your yes. off season in terms of just rediscovering love for the game? I mean, maybe I'm overstating it, but did, did do you feel refreshed? Do you feel like you're ready to keep playing? I mean, you... Uh, you definitely had a, a rough stretch down the down the second half of last year. Yeah, well, yeah, last year I played pretty solid all last year. I, my rough stretch was kind of uh, Green Mountain Championships through USDGC, those few weeks where I finished like 20th or like top 20 barely, stuff like that, which is not really terrible. It's just uh, not my standard. And yeah, this touring thing in the motorhome, I mean, it sounds like a dream life, and of course it is really fun, and uh, you learn a lot, but 
this is my fifth year now doing this. And I was just done with that kind of life, like having no home base, being on the road 24-7 for like sometimes like 10 to 15 weeks in a row. It really burns you out. And what I really wanted was a home base, like some place I could go after a tournament and just like have my personal space, my personal time to calm down and relax. Because these tours are literally nonstop. It's you play a tournament, you drive 10 to 15 hours and you practice and you play a tournament and so on and so on. So right now what I've achieved is kind of a home base in Massachusetts and I'm out of the motorhome. I'm flying to events instead of driving. And all in all, this seems to me to be way easier for me mentally. And that might and hopefully will result in me playing better also. Do you think, and I want to talk about the, your tournament performance in a second, but looking at a bigger picture, from your perspective as a pro, do you think having a more rigorous tour, having the pro tour and the NT, for instance, and having so many more events on the calendar, do you foresee more pros doing what you're doing, kind of getting off of the road and finding that home base? Oh, God, that's a question I got to think about, Jamie. What are you doing? You said no softballs. <laughs> okay. Uh, wow. I don't know. I I honestly don't know how how many pros are doing this nonstop touring thing this year. But uh, with all these huge tournaments we have, these tours going on, there's there's almost a tournament every weekend where you can make four digits easily if you're if you play well. But I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I actually really don't know. I know Eagle's taking it easy. I, I'm not sure about Paul this year, but he's been taking it pretty easy the last couple of years. Uh, Ricky, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about the question. Um, Fair enough. Eagle came on the show last week, and he predicted you to win this tournament. And he said... I did uh, not hear that. I should have listened to that. Yeah, you should have listened to it. Yeah, we, we asked him to make his picks, and he said, I'm picking Simon to win the Memorial because he can't stand it when I beat him. And <laughs> you know, since he won Las Vegas, he said, Simon's going to bounce back and win the Memorial. Uh, thoughts on that and on your perhaps very friendly rivalry with Eagle? Yeah, this tournament was <clears throat> so interesting, the Memorial, because... The guy that was chasing me the whole time, I felt like was rooting for me the whole time. It was weird. Like, I've never felt anything like that. He wanted his it's, pick to be right. Yeah, I don't know what it was, but it <laughs> felt like he wanted me to win more than he wanted to win. I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, that's what it felt like for me. And it just felt so weird competing against someone who wanted me to win. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, I don't know if he actually wanted that to happen or if I was just barely holding on to my lead the whole time. I'm sure if I would have made mistakes, he would have, of course, taken the win. I don't doubt that. But, uh, yeah, it was interesting. I'm, it, was, it was nice, actually. It kind of felt good. I mean, you guys are finishing one and two. You're both making lead cards. Such a strong start. I don't want to make the obvious point, like, hey, obviously, off-season training works because... Every sport on earth knows, you know, every athlete for any sport on earth knows that. Duh. But w can you sort of describe the feeling 
of putting all of that work in and, and really finally committing, because I, I do agree with you. I think you did finally really commit to this. And then both of you just being in contention for both of these big events, uh, you know, what is your kind of summary two weeks in of that transition? Um, okay. It might, yeah, I think it might be a combination of us being fit and ready and the other guys being not fit and not ready. I mean, they will bounce back. Everyone is getting warmed up. Eagle and I just happen to be like ready from the start. We are so mentally prepared and physically prepared for the season to kick off. And I guess everyone else was slacking on that. So it's a combination of those two things. And I'm sure that when the next tournaments start rolling in, that everyone will find back to their strength and form. And it'll be, I don't want to say, yeah, as obvious as it was like the first two tournaments now. So, yeah, it just feels, yeah, really cool to, I don't know, it's so hard to explain for me because these five weeks, it's only five weeks. It's crazy to imagine that only five weeks can make such a huge impact and difference on your lifestyle and your goals and how you're able to perform. It's crazy. Just imagine what two months or six months or a year of like dedicating time and effort to what I'm doing could do. It's yeah, it seems like there's so much room to improve still if five weeks can do that much. Is this the year of the crush boys? I mean, that's what we're putting all the time, effort and money into is uh, making us making us as good as we possibly can be. I'm back on the training schedule right now. I know Eagle is going to be doing 100% every day to, to keep dominating. And, yeah, I think, I mean, it's a sport. It's golf. We, we can never be perfect. We don't. It's, it's always going to be a back and forth. It's always going to be difficult. But uh, I think it can be the year of the Crush Boys, and we're working hard to make that happen. So let's let's turn attention to your performance in Arizona. Everybody knows you throw really far, and I, I know your game well. For anybody listening that doesn't know, I actually was the tour manager for Simon Lazat's Flying Circus Tour back in 2015 for about 10 weeks. So Simon and I have played a lot of golf together, and I've even caddied for you in T or so. Your drives were on point. You were hitting the fairway. But the X factor, in my opinion, in your game has always been your putter. When you just figure it out, it looks so effortless and it goes in. And when you're not on that week, you look very confused on the course. You know, at what moment did you just know your putter was working this week? I've been I've been playing this game for over 20 years and I still don't exactly know when when my putter's on and when not. It's just it's often the first putt of the tur- of the round. If you have a good first putt of the round, you can just it's so much easier to carry that momentum and carry that confidence throughout the full round. But uh I don't know what it was. It just felt like it was meant to happen. I could feel it from I think the second round on, I was like, "Whoa!" This, the same feeling I had during Kono Pista, the same feeling I had during Ledstone, 
was, I'm going to win this tournament. And it was so hard for me to get out of that mindset that I'm going to win during round two, three, and four. Like, I had to focus to not think about winning too much. I just still, like, shake my head and, and tell myself, dude, don't think about winning now. You still have, like, 30 holes to play. <laughs> so, yeah, I just had this, this weird feeling, like, I'm going to win. Like, everything's going my way. I'm getting good breaks. My putter in the basket looks like it's 20 feet wide. Uh, I don't know what's happening. So, it's all about just riding bad, staying focused. And, yeah, when did, when did I feel my putter being on fire? I don't know. This is only the second tournament I've used those putters on. I'm still putting P1Xs. Um, if a buddy of mine gave me his those putters, that he retired them, so they're really beaten. And I just love the way those feel. And I don't know. I don't know. It just, I, I can't explain. It was just, it seemed easy. You, you just mentioned something, and I have to say, I didn't know this about you. You've been playing disc golf for 20 years, which means you must have first started playing when you were a small child, what, five years old? Yeah, well, I, I have pictures on Facebook. I have an album. Uh, I call it What You All Wanted to Know, because people always ask me uh, when I started playing. And it was from 1994, the pictures. So I was like one and a half, two years old, and I was like throwing discs in the backyard. Wow. With perfect form, almost. Oh, oh wow. I, I, would, I can vouch for that. I've seen these pictures. I was going to ask, do you feel like you're... You obviously have an elite, you know, top 0.01% ability to throw a Frisbee a, a really long way. Is that something that you think developed because you started playing at a young age? Or do you think you just genetically are able to throw a disc really well? No, I am... Well, I didn't study this, so I don't know, but I'm very convinced that that's, I think 99% of ability ha happens when you're a child. So if you look at the top 20 players, disc golf players in the world, if you look at probably 90% or more of all top 20 athletes in the world in any sport, they started that sport when they were kids. There's very, very few exceptions, I think. Again, I have not studied this, but yeah, it's you can't learn when you're 20 or older than 20 years old what you can learn when you're a kid. It's just, I don't think it's possible. So, and sometimes I would start my clinic like that. And this, my first sentence would be, oh, hey, guys, just so you know, you can never throw like me. That's my <laughs> first sentence. And everyone, I don't know, some people laugh, some people look really confused. Oh, <laughs> classic Simon line right there. All right, moving day, Fountain Hills, bogey-free, 14-down performance. You hit half your putts from outside the circle, which is three of six, by the way. That's not an insignificant number. What mentality did you go into that round with? Because that's... That's out the box. That's out the box? What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, that's just like... I, I thought for a minute you were going to challenge Macbeth 17 down. It was so far beyond what you could even expect. Like, what you would say a good round is, that's still another level above that. 
yeah. what was it about Fountain Hills on Saturday or Friday? Yeah, I mean, 14 down is really good, of course, uh, but that course is so e- easy. Like, if you can stay away from the OBs and the water, then it's it's literally throwing like 300 foot hyzers on every almost every hole. And because I can throw pretty comfortably 500 foot hyzers, a 300 foot hyzer is like super easy for me. So messing up any of those holes feels like a terrible mistake. So for for me, a 14 under felt like that was acceptable. <laughs> Everything else just feels pretty terrible, honestly, on that course. Sure. And yeah, I went into that round with the mentality I go into every round, just do your best, forget the rest. And playing with Paul Eagle and was who was who was the fourth guy on that card? Nico. Paul, yeah, Nico. Paul Eagle Nico. Yeah, Paul was I don't know, I've played that course with Paul a couple of times, final rounds. I was happy it was only the third round this time. Just yeah, and my, my putt on hole one, of course, shot my confidence way beyond. And from then on, it was just riding the wave. It didn't hurt that on hole six, you kind of bounced off the tire of that car and stayed in bounds too, huh? Well, I couldn't see that happen, so it didn't really affect me. I just saw my disc being safe and I figured, oh, it must have curled up. But uh, then later on, I heard I hit the tire and I was like, oh. That's lucky, yeah. but then when I saw the video, I was like, oh my god, that was super lucky. <laughs> I'm sure a hundred people were ready to tell you that you uh, just bounced off the tire, too. Well, I love I loved my palm tree kick to parked on hole 11 almost better than I liked. Because that roll cost me, saved me one stroke. That palm tree hit probably saved me at least two strokes. Yeah, fair. How was the final round in terms of nerves? It was, you know, it was fairly close for much of the round until really, you know, really the last couple of holes. Uh, Eagle was right there, and even Nate Sexton made a charge a little bit. Uh, were you feeling, you, you know, you mentioned feeling like you were just going to win the whole time. Was that also there for you in the final round? Yeah, final round was a bit different, of course. Um, there was a lot of people watching. There was uh, a lot of pressure. There was a lot of going stuff going on in my mind and what was weirding me out the whole time is that the guy in second place wanted me to win so i i didn't really know what was going on i was feeling nervous and usually like the nervousness calms down the further you go throughout the round but my nervousness got like more and more every hole so i was just trying really focusing on taking deep breaths and yeah, in the last couple of holes, it's final rounds. It's always you stop, or at least I stop playing my game. I stop playing the course, and I just watch what the other guys are doing, and I kind of like try to react to that. When you say that Eagle was wanted you to win, was there anything that that gave you that indication? Was he was he saying like, go out and win this, or or what? No, it was just. I mean. Of course, we spent a lot of time together in Switzerland talking about this kind of stuff. And we still talk to our coach, Andy, every day. And 
we had weekly coaching sessions about mental game and he like wrote us uh, a message before before the final round saying hey guys you're playing together you're competing for the win and it's really important that you support each other and it's really important that you only talk about the positives and just yeah just try and be like friends try to be happy try to be positive so that's what our coach t- told told us and eagle i mean last year eagle would have never ever been that way to me like he would say good shot nice shot to all of my good shots we he would give me high fives he and just his reaction when i won it was just all very surprising and really uh positive to me looking ahead to waco the next uh, kind of marquee events on the schedule. Yeah. What do you have to do to keep this level up? Because you're now going into, like you said, the first time in the last five weeks where you don't have an immediate tournament to go play or an immediate video to go film or anything like that. How are you going to keep your momentum through the one week break here? Yeah, I had a coaching session uh, yesterday with my trainer. Uh, I just came back from a run actually. And I have a home base. I bought a new foam roll yesterday. I bought a yoga mat. I bought running shoes. And uh, I have a full schedule this week with yoga, with uh, back stabilization kind of workouts because I've had some back problems in Vegas. And, yeah, a lot of rest time because that's also just as important as training time. I'm not sure if I'm going to play. The weather looks really, really bad for the next couple of days. There's like a snowstorm warning. So yeah, the nor'easter is coming. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe play around at Vibram next weekend if there's if the weather's nice. But other than that, just yeah, do my stretches, do my runs, and try and eat as healthy as possible. And yeah, don't drink too much beer. That's my plan. Trust in the process. Trusting the process. I like it. Sounds good, Simon. Well, thanks so much. Congratulations on your win. And uh, enjoy your, your downtime in Massachusetts. Oh, do you want to have him do picks? Oh, we got to have him do picks. Yeah, we got to have him do picks. Well, do Eagle we pick Simon to win. And Simon won. So who is Simon going to magically anoint to win Waco? Yeah, That's we're what picking I for Waco. It's a couple weeks out. but uh, Eagle you can... won't be in Waco, though. All right, Eagle won't be in Waco, but who you got winning? Are you taking you? Wait, can you pick yourself? Sure, if you want. Sure. Um, Waco. Let me think about the course. Last year, Jeremy Colling won in the playoff against James Conrad. That's true. James played really well in Phoenix. Not very well in uh, Vegas, I believe. Also true. Um, I played well at both events. Paul and Ricky both kind of still rusty. Thinking about all that, I think it's going to be a close race between Ricky, myself, and James Conrad. And I'm going to win. All right, so there's your podium. Simon at the top. And uh, you got Ricky over James or vice versa? No, I got James over Ricky. James over Ricky. Maybe we'll get another playoff. Be fun. I like the breakdown. He's doing our job for us. Totally. We'll just we'll just cut and copy that into our Waco preview show in a couple weeks. 
I mean, yeah. you, you can never really count out Macbeth, but uh, of course, I don't know. He's married now, so I don't know what is and what's happening in his head. Tough. To I say. didn't say it. I didn't say it. I didn't say it. All right, what, Simon. <laughs> what, what I just said? Yeah, you said oh. it. <laughs> thanks, thanks for coming on with us, and uh, good luck in Waco. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you, guys. Simon Lazat, champion of the memorial. Welcome back to The Upshot. All right, we're going to do a little segment here about, you know, take stock of the first two events. We've got a little time until Waco. So we've got some time to kind of collect our thoughts and think about what is the rest of the season going to look like. And after, you know, I picked Ricky Wysocki to win this week. He did not win. Uh, Finished top five, but, you know, wasn't his sharpest self. And, you know, finished nine strokes off the lead. And I guess the question here, and I'll ask it to you first, Jamie. Are you optimistic about Ricky Wysocki's performance going forward, or are you feeling pessimistic about what you've seen from him so far? Ooh, I like this game. Okay. I'm, I'm pessimistic on Ricky as of right now. And let me tell you why. He is not... I don't think he's somebody who... who deals with a lot of like rust or he doesn't need a lot of time historically getting into his groove and getting into the season. I mean, this time last year, his putter looked like he never stopped putting from the minute he stepped off the course at the end of the previous year. So the other thing that, that kind of makes me wonder is I noticed Ricky going a lot to the backhand in those kind of 50, 50 situations, especially at Vista where I expect to see that forehand. I mean, he's top three forehand player in the game and he was opting for the backhand, which traditionally he needs these high lines. Um, and, and he likes to use the backhand when there's a lot of room to work. So I don't know if it's a, if it's a trust issue, maybe if he just doesn't feel it's dialed this early in the year, but, or, and I know that in the past he's been come from a very forehand dominant, style of game and sort of balanced it out wins two world championships in a row has phenomenal years is he too far past his forehand or you know so i really want to see some balance before i can be really optimistic about reaching the level of expectations that we have for him which are different than everybody else's all right i'm going to tell you why i'm optimistic first of all track record We've seen two years of Ricky Wysocki playing the best golf in the world. And obviously, he hasn't won every single event. But on the whole, he has been the best. And I expect to see him regress to the mean here a little bit in terms of getting back towards playing that way. And here's specifically what I'm talking about. He was, you know, in terms of fairway hits, solid, you know, Looked fine off the tee. Um, he, you know, parked plenty of holes. He was playing pretty well. There's two numbers that I want to point out. Number one is his circle one putting percentage. He only putted 82% from circle one of this tournament. That was the l- dead last among the top 10 players of the tournament. Now, that said, he was 44% from circle two, which was first in the top 10. 
Okay, so it's to me an aberration that he was number one in circle two putting and last in the top 10 in circle one putting. His scramble percentage was also among the lower at the tournament. And that's something that we know that he is exceptional at. We saw all last season, his ability to scramble and save par was basically unparalleled. So to me, I think we're seeing... Now, look, could it be a symptom of a longer-term putting issue that he's not dialed in? I think if you saw both his circle two and circle one percentages looking pretty low, then fine, I buy that. But when he's hitting 44% of his circle two putts and yet is not doing particularly well from circle one, that seems random. That seems like not something that I would expect to see be a consistent problem for him uh, because it, it just doesn't make sense that you would be bad from close distance and, and great from long. So I think we're going to see why Saki bounce back because I, I'm not really concerned about his you know, his power or his accuracy off the tee. This just seemed like a tournament where the putts were not going down like they usually do. And I see no reason to think that that's going to be something that persists throughout the season. All right. How about Paul Macbeth? Are you optimistic or are you pessimistic from what we've seen so far? I think in similar fashion to Ricky, I'm, I'm pessimistic about Paul right now. And again, are these fair expectations compared to my expectations for the rest of the field? No, but this is the trend that they've been setting for the last six years now. So, Paul, I was looking for improvement on his putt. I didn't particularly see it. I saw him airball. I saw him airball a couple putts that, uh, for example, uh, Fountain Hills, hole three. He's got a downhill putt. That when when we've watched him set records and just dominate this tournament, he's made putts from twice that distance, going at that exact same basket downhill, and then we see him just fly the basket, airball over top by like three feet, and just slide right out of bounds. So it's not that he, his his misses were not close for Paul standards. So you know, I think he's definitely stronger. I recognize that he's he's just adding more and more distance without losing much accuracy. Um, but something about his putt has to start clicking again. And at that point, I'll become optimistic. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but it's hard to disagree. Um, right now, he sits at 96th on on tour, quote-unquote, for this season. I mean, we only had two tournaments, but he's 96th in circle one putting. So, you know, it's a problem. Um, and, and I guess, uh, that, excuse me, that was just at the Memorial. Um, at Las Vegas, let's take a look at that. He was 66th in circle one putts. So it, it does, I'm a little concerned, and this again is about track record. Like, we haven't seen that killer Macbeth putter in a couple years now. And like, sure, we'll, you know, we'll get a glimpse of it at one tournament or he'll just be totally locked in. Um, you know, last year, De La Vega, just like insane Macbeth performance, like untouchable. Uh, but on the whole, I'm still, I'm feeling a little pessimistic. And again, this is relative to championship expectations uh, because that's what we expect. 
and he's still going to be a guy who finishes in the, every, every tournament, you know, top five, top ten. Uh, but I'm 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 a little bit bearish on his ability to you know sort of win a lot of the the big tournaments this year because we just haven't seen him recapture that form in a couple of years uh, with the putter. And you know, luckily for him, he's so talented that he can get away with it. And still, you know, it's not like he had a bad year by any means last year. Uh, but it's it, it's starting to feel like a like a longer term trend, and that's what worries me. Yeah, and both Ricky and Paul could sleepwalk their way to the top ten. They're just that good. Um, and, and I will say, since we're both being pessimistic on Paul, I will say if you want to be an optimist on Macbeth's game. You should look at his second round at Vista del Camino, 1081 rated, one bogey performance, um, you know, ties Sexton, Conrad, and and I think just those two for the hot round. There's hope there, but overall consistency is what we come to expect from Paul Macbeth. And the, the consistency, when the consistency lacks in his game, it's just obvious because he set such a high standard. So let's do uh, let's do one or two more here. Somebody who, besides from the final round, had a really good weekend was Nico Castro. What do you think about Nico? Optimistic or pessimistic? For the first time in a long time, I am optimistic on Nico Castro. The way, first of all, I, I was on the fence about this, and then when I saw that post footfall interaction and the way he got fired up and the way. He stared down the two-time defending world champion and just said, all right, I'm going to go putt for putt with you. And he did for the rest of that round. I think in combo that with the forehand that he's been developing, um, he, his backhand looks good. Even when he stumbled a little bit by Nico's standards, he's not really reacted. I mean, he, he's, a, he's a passionate player and he's going to wear his emotions on his sleeve. So he's never just going to you know, stone face it. But... He's been able to mostly hold his emotions in check. And honestly, he's played great two weekends in a row. I mean, he's been on coverage at both events so far. So I, I'm I'm buying. I'm optimistic. Yeah, and if you look at the final round and you just say, okay, let's assume that instead of the five under that he shot, you know, he shot towards the what what we saw from the from the lead card, you know, 8 or 9 down. That would have put him in fourth place. He would have been right there with with Waisaki at 34 under. Uh, he finished at 30 under total. So, the, you know, aside from that round, he was a top 5 player at this tournament. And that's after coming off of a f- tied for fourth finish at Las Vegas. So, he's playing great. I see no reason not to be optimistic. Uh this is as good a start as we've seen from him in a long time. And I think that he's clearly got the tools to be that player who finishes top three on a regular basis. It's always been about the emotions for him. It's always been about that. And, you know, you talk about it with the football thing. You can talk about it with him getting upset with himself after a poor putt or a missed shot. And that's going to be the, the question mark is like, can he, can he do that for the course of the season? Can he find that consistency of not getting too high or too low? Just going out and executing the shot that you know that you need to make and not letting the ins and outs of every shot affect your 
mentality. And that's, that's always going to be the question for him. And I, I think that if he can find that level-headedness, there's no reason that he can't be somebody we talk about as one of the top pros in the game. Absolutely. He has, he has all the tools. And now with the forehand, he literally has every shot in the game. Uh, and his, you know, he's one of the best players in the world when it comes to touch, flex, Anheuser backhands. And that's a shot that you have to have if you're going to be a professional. And it's a shot that not many amateurs can execute with the regularity and precision that he does. It's just, does he believe in himself in those moments? And we saw him towards the end of this tournament miss a couple of very makeable putts. Can he believe in himself enough? And can he will himself back into that winner's circle? Because, and I should say, it shouldn't be that hard. He did win in Thailand. So, Hey, I, I'm not, like I said, I'm optimistic. Uh, but I, like you're saying, his biggest factor, his biggest enemy is still himself. It's all between the ears. It's all between the ears. All right. Last play we're going to do here. Jamie, are you optimistic or pessimistic about James Conrad? James Conrad. This is the one I'm probably most on the fence about. I was a little surprised by his slow start out of the gate. And again, I, I kind of laugh saying this 20th, at a national tour is not terrible. Um, but you know, he's, he's got more hype around him now. I'm going to be optimistic. I'm going to be slightly optimistic. Uh, what I really liked, and even though he struggled down the stretch at Memorial, I liked that he just had the courage to keep throwing. I mean, he took that double bogey six on, I believe hole third hole 14, in the final round came back hole 15 and he just lined up a massive shot and it went out of bounds again. But the fact that he would get back on the horse and just say, you know what? I'm committed to this game plan. I'm committed to being aggressive down the stretch, go for broke. I'm going to run these putts. You know, usually when you have that level of commitment to a style and you hang with it, come hell or high water, things generally end up on the positive side for you. And so uh, for that reason, I'll be slightly optimistic. I think I'm, I'm more optimistic than you. I, I think James Conrad, you know, again, in a similar way to Nico in the final round, you know, kind of got off. He was doing just fine. You know, he had, let's see, six birdies in the front nine. And then just a couple of mistakes, a couple of OBs. He got that weird bounce off the water bottle. And, you know, he takes the triple bogey on 14. Uh, and like that kind of derailed his round and kept him out of contention for a, for a top threes finish. Uh, but he also closed out with three birdies. And so ultimately I think James Conrad's going to have another big year. Uh, I, I don't think that this is particularly concerning for the long term. Uh, I, I think that these courses, not, not that he's not a, a able to throw far, but I think these courses are not totally suited to his game. And we're going to see a lot more from him once we get into some more technical courses. And I, I think that he's probably going to win a big tournament this year. I, I could see him winning. I could see him winning a major. I could definitely see him winning an NT. And uh, I, I just think James Conrad is is here to stay as a uh, a really top player. It's interesting you say that. My read on his memorial performance is that when he went, there, there were a few times when he opted for a very technical shot in lieu of 
the sort of obvious play. And that seemed to be where he got into trouble. So totally. I think um, I think if you're right, then that's just rust. And when you get to the more technical courses, he's going to shake that off. Uh, but, you know, usually in those scenarios, you're not going to take that technical line unless you're really feeling it. Or again, unless you're just really committed to your strategy. So my he's our Jim Furyk, right? He's got an, <laughs> he's got interesting form. He makes it work. He's a big, lanky dude. Interesting form is generous. Uh, yeah, and he's he's talented. Like he, he can juggle. He's got a lot of hand eye coordination. But it's not like like you put him next to a Drew Gibson in terms of like comparing form, and there's a clear winner in terms of who's textbook. So for that, that's why I can only be slightly optimistic on Conrad because I think with the way he throws and the way he attacks courses. It, it won't take much to derail his momentum. but And that's fair. I mean, I think you can see that in that final round. But he's got – but he has it. He makes it work. And at the end of the day, golf doesn't care how perfect your form is. It cares what you do when you're on the course and can you use the tools you have to put the shot down when you need it. So slightly optimistic. Fair enough. I mean, I think that the the fact that he was trying more technical shots instead of the hyzers just goes to show that he feels a lot more comfortable with those shots. And I think it's, you know, taking the big hyzer can, you know, it is probably the optimal shot on many of the holes that you play at the memorial. But when it comes down and everybody has to make the technical shot because you're in the woods or something along those lines, that that's where he's going to just feel more at home. And and I think that that's why we'll see him play better later this season. Not that he's playing badly right now, but uh, he's he's got room to grow when he gets onto more familiar territory. Definitely, I'd love to hear what everybody out there listening thinks. You know, how, are we in agreement? Do you any of y'all disagree with uh, our assessments so far? That'd be interesting to know. Yeah, you can let us know in the comments or at discgolfatultyworld dot com. Also, as we have noted. Our picks contest is going to be opening up to listeners. We've already gotten a bunch of emails for people who want to get involved and make picks at a tournament this year. We're going to start the official competition at Waco. So you still got a couple weeks. And, uh, you know, Jamie and I got got a couple free warm-ups. But we're going to have to zero the counter. And we're going to have to get everything started with, uh, with our listener challenge in our picks battle. I think we'll do top three. And actually... Now that I think of it, I, I got a great email. I got to pull it up. Give me one second. From a listener who suggested a way that we score picks. And it makes a lot of sense. I was wondering about this. It makes a lot of sense. So Danny Voss suggests that we, uh, we do three picks. This is what he and his buddies do. And whatever place that they get at the tournament is the number of points that you earn. So... Then, of course, the lowest point total would win. The perfect score would be a six if you picked one, two, and three in that order. And then you, you know, you to- total the score. So we, we'll get the nice comparison to golf with the lowest score winning. Um, and that, of course, allows us to make comparisons between finishes and that kind of thing um, and not have to feel like we're taking an average or something like that. And we just add up the points. And uh, at the end of the season, whoever's got the fewest total points is going to win. What do you think, Jamie? You know, you know what? I really like that because then 
it doesn't put so much pressure to pick the podium in order. I mean, do they do a bonus if you get the podium order correctly? That like, is exactly what I was point? just going to suggest, which is that I think we pick winner and we pick podium, and you're gonna we have to determine what the bonus will be for picking the winner. It's going to be minus some amount of points. So we'll have to figure out what that number should be, but maybe like five points, negative five for picking the picking the winner correctly. You could play a tournament under par then. That would allow you to pl- play at one point, right? Because uh, you shoot, get one, two, three. One, two, hey, and three is six minus five. But maybe we should make it negative six so that you could take a zero. Oh, I'd like love if to you, take If a you zero. just totally nailed it, you just take zero points. That's. I just like the idea of being able to say I took a zero and it'd be a positive <laughs> thing. Anyway, we may tweak that slightly, but this is the general plan. So if you want to get involved with our Listener Picks Challenge, send an email to discgolf.ultyworld.com and let us know. We'll put you on the list, and at some point, you may get an email asking you to make picks for the week's tournament. So uh, we will get our Waco picks in in a couple weeks, and this will give everybody some time to figure it out. So thank you to Danny Voss for that great idea, and... Uh, thanks to all of you for listening to the show every week. If you would love, we would certainly appreciate it if you take a second to give us a review or a rating over on iTunes, on Stitcher, wherever you listen to the show. It helps us out. It helps other people find the show. And uh, we want to make this the best it can be. So, of course, we're always open to your comments as well by email. Jamie? Tell your friends. Yes, tell your friends. Jamie, great show. Thanks to everybody for listening. We'll talk to you next time right here on The Upshot. See ya.